This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and I invite you to open there with me. We're going to be in a number of places in Scripture, and so make sure if, if you've got a Bible in the pew back in front of you, grab that, sit next to someone who's really comfortable navigating the Scriptures. If you're uncomfortable, grab your phone and you can click through it because we're going to be in a lot of different places this morning, and I want to make sure you can follow along with where we're headed. We're continuing a, a three-week sermon series right now, what we're calling Own the Vision. Own the Vision. And I rarely preach in kind of this uh, skipping and hopping fashion around Scripture. Most of the time, you know, I am much more inclined to preach from one book of the Bible, and we work our way successively through that. I am looking forward to doing that again, okay? This is, it's nerve-wracking for me to consider the magnitude of what we're looking at together for two reasons. One is most certainly this is God's holy word. And I feel convicted often whenever I open this word and I don't just trust, you know, following through a certain book of the Bible. I feel like that is the, the best way for a church to navigate through scripture. And so that's the number one reason that it's overwhelming. But the second reason is this, the rich history of this church. God has done so many wonderful things uh, for such an extended amount of time in our church and in our community, and really this mission statement captures who we are, and so how arrogant or presumptuous it could possibly be to say, in just three weeks, we're going to seek to understand this, okay? And so I, I ask for your grace and your patience with me as we walk through this together. Understand that we're not seeking to be exhaustive of what we're looking at, but we are certainly seeking to better understand who God has called us to be. This morning, as we look at the second part of this vision statement, we're really going to look at something that I have never preached on in my life. It's not something I've ever had the boldness or the courage to stand before a congregation and proclaim before today. It's because it's a weighty, mysterious matter, and we're going to talk about what it means to be a praying church in just a moment. But let's recap last week before we do that. Last week, we considered what it means to be a teaching church, right? We, we understood that, that we looked at the way Jesus was addressed again and again in Scripture. Uh, you might remember this statistic. Over two-thirds of the time that, that Jesus was direct, directly addressed, uh, two-thirds of those occasions, he was called teacher, right? And lastly, we looked at the rich young ruler and how he came to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved. And so what we did is we walked through that teaching that Jesus shared with him and then also looked at what the disciples learned as they witnessed that encounter. And we learned as a church that to reflect the heart of Christ in the heart of Cave Spring, we must be a teaching church. We have to capture his heart and be teaching others the truth of the gospel. And then you might remember uh, this bold declaration at the end of the message last week this direction for our church. We must see three new adult small groups and two new children's small groups started on Sundays. It, it needs to happen. We need this place of connection for those that are coming into our church. We need this place of teaching. Yes, we have really some great adult classes already on Sunday morning, but we need to extend our reach 
We need to extend our point of connection for these families and for these adults. And so we want to make sure we do that and we're good stewards of what God has blessed us with. And so I want to tell you this morning that God has already been moving in that way. That already in answer to the prayers prayed last week, God has been putting together some pieces He's been giving wisdom where wisdom was certainly needed, and God is already opening those doors, and I hope that you look forward with anticipation for that happening in the near future. God is doing wonderful things already. But this week, we're going to consider the next part of this mission, and it's this. To reflect the heart of Christ, we must be a praying church. We must be a praying church. I had great difficulty landing here this morning because I thought, well, well, prayer is foundational to everything that we do. And in fact, I had a conversation last week with with one of our leaders, and I I said, I said, you know, prayer should be implied in the Christian life. This is is something that should be assumed about who we are as God's people, that we need to talk about being a caring church or a church that's doing outreach in our community. And, and, And the implication in all of that is that we're praying along the way But I couldn't move past the notion of what that leader said to me. He said, you would think that would be assumed. And then he said it again. You would think that would be assumed, but but maybe it's not. And I couldn't couldn't let go of that. I walked away from that conversation. I said, said, Lord, if, if that's where we're headed, Lord, I pray that you would change my direction. I already had a passage in mind and where we were headed for this week, but God changed that throughout the week. We must be a praying church, and I'm not going to make the assumption this morning that we are. I believe we pray for the needs within our church, the physical concerns. I believe we do a great job of that. I believe that when I charge you to pray with me on a Sunday morning, I do believe that when you bow your head with me, you are indeed praying. But for us to be a praying church, there's this matter of persistent prayer ongoing prayer, an attitude of prayer, bathing the mission of God in prayer through the local church. And this is not just for some to consider, it's for all of us to consider. And so this morning we're going to do two things. One, we're going to see the heart of Christ. We're going to see how in his life he reflected a prayerful attitude and a prayerful life. And then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to look at a particular teaching he had on prayer and what we also can learn about prayer from that teaching. With that in mind, would you stand with me and honor the reading of God's word, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. This is no doubt very familiar to you, I'm sure. Jesus is teaching. He says, therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are grateful for this time that we have to consider the treasure of your word. And Lord, I ask for wisdom and understanding. I ask that you would make clear what may be obscure. I ask, God, that you would encourage us and also challenge us as your people. Because, God, we do seek your glory 
on this earth. And so, God, I pray that you'll use this time together as only you can. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Again, the first thing I want us to consider this morning is how prayer is reflected in the heart of Christ. And I hope to move through this section quickly so we can get to this specific passage that we just read. Note this. We should pray because Jesus modeled the importance of prayer. We should pray because Jesus demonstrated how important it was in his own earthly ministry. And and the argument I want to make is this. If Jesus prayed, then it makes sense that we should pray. Let's look at how he prayed. And I want to move through seven different ways we see him pray in Scripture. First of all, we see this. He prayed alone. He prayed alone. He, he prayed in, in solitude places, in isolated places, away from everyone else. I gave you a scripture reference there. Matthew chapter 14 and verse 23, we read this. After dismissing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, the scriptures say, he was there alone. He separated himself from everyone else for one purpose and one purpose alone, to pray. But as we look at Matthew 14 and we consider all that happens in Matthew 14, we begin to understand really the reason why Jesus stole away in this moment to be by himself. If you're there in that chapter, you're going to notice, first of all, his emotional distress, some things he was going through that just like we would wrestle with, he also wrestled with. You see, in Matthew 14, we find there that John the Baptist not only was imprisoned before, but now he was beheaded and put to death. And what we find is, in in verse 13, is that Jesus learns of this horrific way that his friend and companion in ministry had died, and he wanted nothing less than to be by himself. And here's what we find in Matthew 14 and verse 13. It says, when Jesus heard about it. In other words, when he heard about the passing of John the Baptist, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone, But when the crowds heard this, they couldn't stand it. So guess what they did? It says they followed him on foot to the other side of the sea. Right? They didn't want him to be by himself. They wanted to be right under his feet, so to speak. They didn't want him to steal away and pray. But he longed for this. As we continue from verse 13, we find that Jesus has the stress of ministry. In the middle of his emotional turmoil, he still ministers and pours himself out to others. We find the beautiful story of the feeding of the 5,000 there. Jesus gives thanks for the bread and the fish, and he divides it, and we know this miraculous event very well. He feeds everyone that's gathered there. And so Jesus, wanting to be alone, is still, he's still burdened by the crowd. But listen, although the crowd could have provided comfort through their praise, Jesus still longed for solitude. Jesus prayed alone. But secondly, note this. He prayed in public. He prayed in public places. He prayed before others. In John chapter 11 and verses 41 and 42, in that chapter, really, we have the miracle, the most public of the miracles of Jesus, aside from his resurrection himself. He raises Lazarus to life in that chapter. It's a turning point in his public ministry. This was the most magnificent of his miracles, aside from him being raised to life himself. And so it's important we make note of what happens In verses 41 and 42. It says, so they removed the stone. And then Jesus, he raised his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. 
I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. Did you catch that? Jesus says, I know that you always hear me. I don't have to shout to heaven for you to hear my prayers. But listen, Lord, I I prayed out loud. I said these words in a public setting because I want them to see that you sent me. You see, Jesus prayed publicly not as a show of self-righteousness. Quite the opposite, in fact. Although Jesus could have accomplished his work absolutely independently. He prayed to paint a bigger picture for the crowd of his dependence on the Father. You see, when we pray, it's not as a, as a show of self-righteousness. Instead, when we pray, we are invoking the name of God. We're invoking the power of God in this moment, in this occasion, in these events. Why? Because we humbly depend upon his power in this moment, in these events, in these occasions. So Jesus prayed publicly. Third, we see this. He prayed before important decisions. In Luke chapter 6, we find that there's a crowd of people following Jesus. And we come to the pivotal moment in verse 13 where he's going to set aside a select group of men. We know them as the disciples. But notice what Jesus does in verse 12. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. It says, During those days he went out to the mountain to pray. And he spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. This is that pivotal moment in Jesus' earthly ministry where he sets aside the disciples, who will later be the apostles. And, And before he makes such a decision, he steals away alone to pray and ask for wisdom. He models for us that before important decisions, we should also be people of prayer. Listen, although he possessed infinite wisdom, he still never walked arrogantly into a big decision. He prayed at pivotal moments. Fourth, he prayed before performing miracles. We see this happen again and again in his public ministry So it becomes almost commonplace, but in Mark chapter 7 and verses 34 and 35, he's he's healing a man who had been mute. And and, and it's very interesting, the wording, wording that is used in verse 34, it says, looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply. He sighed deeply. And then he performed the miracle. You say, well, he was sighing. He wasn't praying. Listen, most people agree that in that sigh, it wasn't a sigh of frustration, It wasn't a sigh of being overwhelmed. No, in that sigh was captured, I have no doubt, the prayer that he prayed to the Lord. He sighed deeply at this occasion of performing this miracle. Again, not only did he not walk walk arrogantly into big decisions, he didn't walk arrogantly into miraculous activity. He understood the weight of this moment. Even through just a sigh, Jesus prayed before spectacular activity. Fifth, he prayed in thanksgiving. Are, are you getting the picture? I, I think the picture is this, and I could probably you know, put the whole sermon in, in just a cracker box for a second and say, listen, Jesus prayed all the time, right? He prayed all the time. He prayed in thanksgiving, we find here. John chapter 6 and verse 11. This is during the, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. We looked at this a moment ago, but it says, then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them. This young boy brings to Jesus his sack lunch, and Jesus gives thanks for it. 
right? He's humbly showing gratitude at every single turn through his prayers. But I love this, the sixth way we see Jesus praying. He prayed up to his dying breath. I love this. He prayed up to his dying breath. Don't miss this. Luke chapter 23 and verse 46. Jesus is speaking his last words from the cross. And listen to what he says. He says, And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. Listen, his final words from the cross were not cries of anguish, nor were the shouts of his judgment towards his accusers present. It wasn't even a shout for mercy from God. His final words were voiced through a prayer of humble surrender, peacefulness, a sort of gratitude. Jesus prayed constantly, and even after his resurrection, we find this last truth. He prays even now to intercede for others. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, perhaps you know this. It says, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always, what? He lives to intercede for them. It blesses my heart when you come to me and say, Pastor, will you pray for me about this? But you know what blesses my heart even more? To know that God himself, Jesus himself, is praying and interceding for you and I. He lives, it says, to make intercession for us. Here's the big truth about the prayer life of Jesus. Listen carefully. Write this down. The mission of God through Jesus moved forward by the power of persistent prayer. The mission of God moved forward through Jesus by the power of persistent prayer. Why do we believe that? We see that Jesus prayed on all of these occasions, and I could have spent weeks and weeks going through those with you. But more than that, we find that that Jesus wasn't much to look at. We find that in Scripture. He wasn't this powerful, overwhelming figure He didn't have this bombastic personality that encouraged those to follow him. No, we find that he's a humble teacher moving about his ministry on this earth. We find that it's only through the power of persistent prayer as modeled through Jesus that the ministry, the mission of God, move forward. Let me say this before we move on. There's a mystery in Scripture of of the nature of Jesus. Jesus. That he was indeed a man, but he was also God. And and this is a really difficult thing for us to reconcile. And again, not even in a one-hour-long sermon on Sunday morning am I going to walk through that with you. But we do find this. We find that he's a miracle worker. That he's omnipotent. In in other words, that he is all-powerful. We find occasions where he is certainly all-knowing. We, we, we certainly find evidence that he is entirely unique and different from you and I. And so when we find a point of, of common ground with Jesus, we need to pay attention. Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. In spite of all of those wonderful attributes that he possessed, listen, he prayed persistently. How arrogant would it be for you and I to not do the same. I'm not all powerful. Neither are you. I don't know everything. Neither do you. 
I don't know the plans of God and how they're going to unfold before my life or before this church. How arrogant would it be for me to assume that I might? And so we pray. We ask God for wisdom, for understanding, and for guidance. You say, well, that's too wonderful for me to consider. Well, I got good news. He teaches us how to pray as well. Notice this as we move on. We should pray because prayer changes our perspective. It changes our perspective. See, there's this great mystery of prayer, and we say that, that prayer changes things. Well, yes, indeed, we believe prayer changes things, but understand something. Prayer doesn't change the mind and heart of God. God is indeed sovereign. God is indeed all-powerful. And in fact, we find in the book of Job, he says, Who is this that darkens me with this counsel? Who's, who is this that comes into my shadow and offers me advice, he says. Why? Because God is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. And we cannot dare attempt to change the heart and mind of God. This is a mystery. You say, well, why, why do we pray? Well, I believe this. Prayer is the ordained means of God through which he enacts change. I'll say it again. Prayer is the ordained means of God through which he enacts change. In other words, even the prayers you pray are within the sovereign plan of God. That's a mystery. Again, we'll take a long time to go through that. But let me show you something that's clear about prayer. It changes us. It changes who we are. It changes our mind and our heart. And I believe that's the teaching that we find from Jesus in what is called the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Again, he says at the beginning of verse 9, if you'll look at that with me, he says, therefore... You should pray like this. And that word like is important here. It conveys this idea. You should pray in this manner, he says. This isn't a prayer that's meant to be recited again and again and again. What he's saying is this is a sort of model for you of how to pray. This is something that you need to model your prayers after. You should understand the concepts that are kind of captured in what I'm going to share with you. I believe he shows us six things very clearly of how prayer changes who we are. Notice these with me. First, prayer moves us to acknowledge the tension that we live in. It moves us to acknowledge the tension that we live in. Notice how the prayer begins. Our Father in heaven, it says. There's a lot wrapped up in that phrase. First of all, the, the concept of heaven we understand and we believe that heaven is this far removed place from us, right? We, we, we talk about heaven on earth, but we certainly understand that right now we're not experiencing heaven on earth, right? It can be a miserable existence at times. There can be difficulties and hardships that we experience as a part of this life. And so heaven seems and indeed is far removed from where we are. It is that other worldly, far away place that we long for. But notice how the prayer begins in the first two words. Our Father. There's a tension there. Don't miss this. He says there's this faraway place, heaven, right? This, this place that you long for. But, if, but you begin by saying, Father. In other words, you're near. You're, you're close at hand. I, I fear you're not getting it, so let me illustrate it this way, okay? 
I remember the first time Sheree and I went to the Philippines on a mission trip together. This was long before we, we went as a family and loaded everybody up on the airplane and flew over there. This was just she and I with a, with a church mission team, and we left our, our two kiddos at the time, Harper and Hudson, behind. This was a hard thing for us to do. It was a hard thing for them to consider that mom and dad were going to the other side of the world. They thought the Philippines, I think, was somewhere down in South Georgia or something. It was literally on the other side of the planet. We knew that. And so we struggled with that as parents. Hudson was a little more than a year old at the time. This was tough. And we knew that internet service was going to be spotty, and certainly we couldn't just pick up the phone and call them, and this was going to be a challenge. And so we got over there. We'd been there about a week, and Cherie was struggling with homesickness, something terrible, and I was as well. And so we said, if we could just talk to our kids for a moment, it'll make it okay. And I remember we, we found an internet signal strong enough and we, we, we FaceTimed with them for just a moment. We couldn't see their faces. But I remember when Hudson said, Mama and Daddy. Well, we couldn't carry on a conversation with him. But he knew it was us on the other side. Although we were separated by this great distance, you, you see it now? Separated by this great distance, just using and invoking our names, those names of intimacy that he knew us as. Listen, what did it convey? We're close. We're close. We're right here. Listen, when we say, our Father in heaven, this, this faraway, distant place we long for, when we say, Father, it teaches us that yes, we live in attention. Yes, we live in a difficult circumstance, but he is with us. James chapter 4 and verse 8. James writes this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Secondly, we see this. Prayer moves us to worship. Moves us to worship. Notice what it says. It says, your name be honored as holy. The exact wording here really is this, make your name holy. Do something that I cannot do. Make your name great, make your name holy. It expresses our personal worship of God in these, this phrase. I want you to think about the last time someone was cursing around you, right? They were just cussing like a storm. They, they got a really foul mouth and really colorful language and, and it offended you perhaps. It, it does me as well. It offends me, but, and I learned a long time ago, though, when people apologize to me and they say, I'm sorry about that. I shouldn't have said that. I just say, you don't need to apologize to me. You didn't curse me. You're cursing the Lord, right? There's nothing I can do in that moment to make his name holy, right? It's, it's already been profaned in my presence. But listen, when we say this, make your name holy, what we're saying is, God, you do something among us that only you can do. We can't make his name holy. There's nothing within our grasp or within our power to make his name holy, but he indeed can make his name holy. And so we plead with him for that. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, we find the wonderful promise that there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is indeed Lord. It's not something we cultivate or make happen. It's something that he accomplishes among us. Third, prayer then moves us towards a kingdom focus. A kingdom focus. Again, this is not a prayer to be recited word for word, but we see a model for what we should pray. Notice what he says. Pray this, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is 
in heaven. This is difficult for us to consider because the notion of kingdom is strange to us. Uh, We live in a democracy, right? We don't live in a sort of kingdom. The people hearing this for the first time, they understood this in the context of their world, and they understood that a kingdom meant something that was stretching itself out across all of the landscape. It was something where everyone that lived in that kingdom was subject to the king, right? We're removed from that, but here's the bigger point I want you to understand. When we say, your kingdom come and your will be done, it forces us to take our eyes off of our own kingdoms that we're building. When we seek his kingdom, when we shift our focus from what we are seeking to accomplish and instead what he is doing among us, it changes our perspective. You see, we are often so busy with building our own kingdoms that we forget that we live as citizens of a far greater kingdom. We build our kingdoms through our jobs. We forget our greater purpose. Our families, and we forget that we're a part of the family of God. We build our kingdoms through our ambitions, and we forget to have a zeal for the lost. But when we pray this way, it shifts our perspective to his kingdom and his purposes. Number four, prayer moves us to a place of dependence place of dependence. Notice what he teaches us here. He says, give us today our daily bread. This prayer contains no request for wealth, prosperity, or even physical healing. Instead, it gives voice to a simple dependence on the Lord. The literal phrase here is bread just for today. Give me enough just for this moment, for this occasion. The picture helps us remember Exodus chapter 16. You may remember this. The Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and they were hungry. And the Lord says, I'm going to provide for you manna from heaven. And the instructions could not have been more clear. You're going to get enough just for each day, he says. So go out and, and, and gather only enough for that day and I'll provide for you the next day. And we read those verses at the beginning of the service. He says, he says, don't worry about tomorrow, right? Tomorrow has its own trouble. Worry about today. I'm going to provide for you today is the picture. We live in a world that treasures self-sufficiency and a sense of pride. But instead, the Lord calls us to dependence on himself. When we pray, give us today our daily bread. We express to him our trust that he will provide. Notice this in verse 12. Prayer then moves us to see that we are recipients and conduits of grace. That we both receive grace and then we also extend grace to others. He says very clearly, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You see, the language of verse 12, it it pushes us away from any sort of of egoism or arrogance. Instead, it pushes us to see that we indeed receive grace, and then we must extend grace to others. And then finally in verse 13, prayer moves us to see that we are still in a spiritual fight. Verse 13, do not bring us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. You know, I've been warned often not to pray for patience. 
because we know what happens when we pray for patience, right? We, we get occasions where our patience is going to be tested, right? We, we get toddlers who are going to take diaper rash cream and smear it all over the walls and the carpet. That happened at our house, right? We pray for patience. That's what we get. But, but the warning here is, is not against that. Instead, the, the, the call of this passage is to recognize that we don't possess self-control. We don't possess patience. We don't possess godliness in and of ourselves. That is why the plea here is, don't lead me into temptation. Don't put me in those places where I'm tempted. Why? Because I know I can't handle it. There's an example of this from Scripture. You know, sometimes we come to a verse of Scripture and we say, wow, I'm going I'm to write that one down and I'm going to make sure I include that one in my prayer life. Let me give you one not to include in your prayer life. You ready? Psalm 26 and verse 2. Psalm of David. Listen to what David says. He says, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Woo! Guess what David got in return for that prayer? Now, we don't have this following in successive order, but I believe he got the temptation with Bathsheba. Remember that one? It didn't go so well, right? He, he, he faces this temptation and he falls into an adulterous affair and then he has her husband killed. Why? Because he prayed, prove me, O Lord, and guess what? The temptation came. He couldn't handle it. Listen, we should never pray, prove my godliness, Lord. Temptation is not the proving ground of your faith. Why? Because we don't possess godliness in and of ourselves. Instead, the prayer here is, Lord, I know I don't have it all together. I know I'm completely broken, and I, uh, even though I am a benefactor of your grace, I still will fall into temptation. So, Lord, don't lead me to those places. I can't handle it. I need your grace, and I need you to lead me away from it. To reflect the heart of Christ, we must be a praying church. We've seen this in the prayer life of Jesus himself, and then we see that in this teaching about prayer. How could we ever expect God to move through his church if not first in response to persistent prayer? We said this a moment ago. The only way the mission of God moved forward was through the persistent prayer of Jesus himself throughout his earthly ministry. Again, him walking in step with the Father's plans. Listen, don't forget that the church was born through the force of a world-changing prayer meeting in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. That's the way the church was born. Matthew Henry says this, When God intends great mercy towards his people, he first sets them praying. Prayer is foundational to who we are. This was more convicting. I read this this week. When a church resists the life-giving power of prayer, it takes a vigorous step towards its own extinction. When we resist the call to prayer, church, we move towards our death. You see, the life-giving power in a church is not through a leader. It's not through the music we sing. It's not through the decor of the building. It's not through outreach activities. It's not through creatively reaching the community around us. No. The life-giving power of the church is only in response to prayer. So here's the big takeaway. Again, the ambitious, 
assertion I want to put before you, the call to action, if you will. Last week, in response to being a teaching church, I, I gave you some, some metrics, some targets we need to hit in the coming year. I'm putting one in front of you that I've been burdened about for a really long time. I'm going to share with you what happens every single Sunday morning, even if there's chaos in our home and, and, and things, the, the ride in is rough and that kind of thing. Every Sunday morning when I'm in my office before service, Cherie comes in there with the toddlers in tow. She prays with me in my office. She prays that God would speak clearly. She prays that I would have wisdom in this moment that I stand before you. And yes, that time is treasured to me. But here's, here's the invitation I put before you. We need, we need a prayer team of five to seven people to begin meeting to intentionally pray for the continued movement of God through our church. I've longed for this occasion. And here's the challenge I put in front of you. I, I, this may not be the people that are always showing up to things, right? This doesn't mean you, you have to be that that leader in the children's ministry or that leader as a Sunday school teacher or that leader on the staff or even that deacon. Listen, my hope is in response to this, there are a few people in this room that are so burdened about the movement of God through this church that they will begin intentionally praying for this. So here's how I invite you to respond to this. This week, you're going to hear from me. You're going to get an email from me. You're going to continue to hear from me in conversation. In fact, some of you I'm going to go ahead and call myself. Those of you that I know are already people of prayer. And I'm going to invite you to be a part of this team. You don't got to be a person who's a leader necessarily. You don't have to be a person who's ever going to stand in front of people and teach. But here's what I invite you to do. Begin praying with me for God to keep moving. I've shared with you the things that God has done over the last couple of weeks and I believe God has great things in store in the future. But we must be a praying people.